This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. Ask the AMPs is where we try to address any and all maintenance questions that come our way. And if you have a question, reach us at podcasts at AOPA.org. That's podcasts at AOPA.org. And if you like the show, subscribe on Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Yeah, so we have uh, a 210 running that has been running outside with a stuck wastegate. So manifold pressure goes really high. It's very exciting. Doing a prop balance on another one. And another one's out there waiting for me to fly it. Post-maintenance flight check. Those are always fun. I hope they're never fun, but sometimes they are. So, you know, boring flying is good. Do you always fly an airplane after you do maintenance on it or it just depends on the maintenance? Uh, it depends on the, the customer. We offer it to all. So I fly most anything. I don't care. As long as it's a piston engine. I don't know anything about those those gas engines, turbine things, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'll fly most any of them. It's always nice to get it up and, and see what it does. Just in case. I've never taken my airplane, well, I haven't taken my airplane to a shop for years now, but I, if I took my airplane to a shop, I would want them to ask me before they took it flying. Is that standard? Oh, yeah. that, okay. Oh, absolutely. Because their insurance may not cover or may not want, or he or she may not want me to fly their airplane. I don't ever assume. But most owners, because most of my customers are four or 500 miles away. So they really would like someone to give it a good checkout before they come pick it up. And because there's, you know, there are things that may need to be tweaked or whatever, and you don't find those until you fly the airplane. So, Paul, when you when you test fly a customer's airplane, whose insurance are you relying on? <laughs> well, we have insurance for that, as well as the owner's insurance. I'm very fortunate that we've never had to test to find out which one's actually going to pay. Yeah, that's a sure tough way to build time in airplanes, Paul. I'm coming. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Maybe shooting for the airlines. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's me at my age. Okay, let's get started with Bill, who's got an issue that concerns him with his oil pressure. Welcome to the show, Bill. What you have? Thanks. Yeah, back in 1985, I bought a 172N with a 0320H2AD in it. And uh, I had a factory remanufactured engine put in when I bought the airplane. And they remanned it with what was called a T-Mod. 
at that time, the T-Mod was enlarged lifters that they put in there so that they they were trying to solve a spalling problem on the cam. And uh, they did that and it worked well. Had The engine ran great, except for a couple of issues. And anyway, it went all the way to 2,600 hours. And I had to get uh, the engine overhaul just because of time in 2014. And I had a buddy and had an AP shop. He did it, did a great job, except for when it came back, the oil pressure went down the red line when, uh, when we landed. And uh, he's really scratched his head over that for a while. And anyway, the, the person that uh, did the case kind of came up with an answer and said, well, you got to push the case. So where the lifters go, because of the T-Mod. So they put that in there, they pushed the case, rebuilt the engine again. And uh, right now, it's got 660 hours. But every time I fly, the oil pressure goes up to redline on takeoff and drifts back down to normal after about three to five minutes or so. And uh, then it flies perfectly well. But I worry that every time I fly, there's the oil pressure is going up to 100 PSI plus, that it's going to blow something. It's going to blow a seal or the uh, oil cooler is going to blow. Nothing's happened in 660 hours, but I worry about that. You think I'm good just to let it go the way it is? Well, the first thing, have you noticed the oil temperature when the oil pressure is high? Oil temperature is normal. Well, what it, define normal, though. At takeoff. I'm talking about at takeoff when it runs too high. At takeoff, it's, you got to let the engine run quite a while to get it to mid-grain. Oh, you don't have an engine monitor? No, I do not. Okay. I got so, the old Cessna indica- uh, all the old Cessna indicators on it. Right. The you know the oil pressure is a function of RPM and oil viscosity. So the faster the engine turns, the more pressure you're going to build, and the colder or the higher viscosity the oil is, the higher the pressure is going to be. So if you sat on the ground until you got a 160 Fahrenheit, your oil pressure would probably be fine. One of the reasons it comes down after you fly for two or three minutes is because the oil temperature comes up. And if you back the RPM down a little bit, it'll come within reason as well. And when you taxi in, when you pull that throttle all the way back, it's, I don't want to say normal. I don't have a whole lot of H2AD experience, but almost everything else. Your green arc is your oil pressure green for cruise. So you have 200 degree oil when you land and you pull the throttle back to idle, as long as, now I've got to qualify it a little bit, as long as you have some oil pressure, you're in good shape. So 10, 15 PSI typically is not terrible. On your engine, I would say in cruise, you want 75 to 85 PSI at about 180 degrees. But Unfortunately, you don't know where that is, but... No, not with those gauges. Yeah. But I was thinking it may may have something to do with the Veritherm, maybe opening late or or early. But uh, I guess that's not really the instance then. Well, the Veritherm moderates temperature, not pressure. Uh, Although pressure is related to the temperature of the oil, as Paul was saying. 
But um, I mean, the oil pressure could be adjusted by removing washers from the oil pressure regulator. But I have to say my engine does the same thing yours does on takeoff. My oil pressure is way up to the top because I'm taking off at a 100, 150 degrees and the oil is still sludgy. And then as it heats up, uh, the pressure goes down. It's totally normal. Yep. My opinion is you don't have a problem. Yeah. Isn't that the best kind of problem? <laughs> go, go fly the airplane and enjoy it. Can I let him go without nagging him about putting in an engine monitor? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think you have to go for that. <laughs> okay. Consider yourself nagged. You would love it. You would love the numbers. Let me tell just, you. Like just think TV. if you had an engine monitor. You know, my, my thought was if, if he's, if his oil pressure gauge is the is the original Cessna factory gauge, then he really doesn't have any idea what his oil pressure is. Yeah, that's <laughs> possible. That's our recommendation. But um, lucky for you, looks like your problem is not a problem. So that's the best news. That is. I do appreciate it. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for the question, Bill. We really appreciate it. Okay. Have a good day. Take you care. Too, Bill. Bye-bye. So our next question is from Steve. He has some questions about uh, tire wear and airworthiness. Welcome aboard, Steve. Hey, thanks for having me as a guest. All right, my basic question is, what are the indications that aircraft tires are unworthy? My background information is I've just recently purchased the 1971 Cessna Turbo 310Q, which has been sitting since August 2015, but hangered. The main tires were installed during an annual, which occurred seven years and nine months ago, and 81.5 Hobbs hours ago. The nose tire was installed nine years, two months ago, and 86.3 Hobbs hours ago. The tread wear appears minimal. During my recertification annual inspection with my A&P, he said I needed new tires because of weather cracking on about 20% of the surface of the sidewall of the nose tire and some cracking on the tread grooves of the main tire. To see the cracking on the sidewall of the nose tire, you must put your hand inside the tire and actually push against it and expand it. And the cracks are only present on about 5% of the uh, tread grooves on the main tire. No cord can be seen on either tire. Are tires unworthy based upon installation dates? Who is right? Me or the A&P? Do I need to buy new tubes and tires? I love the concept of unworthy tires. <laughs> As opposed to unairworthy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> unworthy. I heard somebody, someone make a comment over the weekend. I was doing a, a thing in Texas, and they said that an airplane was unworthy of upgrade like putting avionics in and never thought in terms of it being unworthy. So actually, it's interesting. Almost all the tire manufacturers have uh, manuals that you can Google and find online that will tell you what they believe the specs are. Uh, I never thought about looking up what the FAA says. And I is there an advisory circular on that, Mike? Did you find yeah, one? I found one. Oh, did you? Yeah, it's... Uh AC 20-97 Bravo, which gives uh, inspection criteria for tires. It's always good to have actual data when you're trying to win an argument. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with the FAA. <laughs> yeah. Or a mechanic. 
And you know, Steve, it's really funny. Your question was what prompted me to finally get around to getting my IA certification because I was wrestling with the IA that was doing the inspection on my Cardinal and he had a little magnifying glass and he was looking at my tires with the magnifying glass and saying, (laughs) you wouldn't believe the Grand Canyon of crevices that I'm seeing in your tires. These go deep. And I said... (laughs) where is your criteria for, you know, rejecting this tire? And I pulled out the Michelin inspection criteria and the Goodyear inspection criteria and and various ACs. And I basically kind of stuck his nose in them and said, show me your data. And he just slunk off. And the next year I said, that's it. I'm just doing my own inspections and got the certification. Yeah. Everything looks like a crater with a magnifying glass. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. So, Colleen, what what is this advisory circular that you found say about this? Well, um, it says you have to remove the tire from service if there's damage or cracks that go into the undercutting. Well, if the groove, if the tread is undercut, definitely. But if you're showing any of the the plies underneath, you know, or any of the structure underneath the tires, but if it's just in the rubber surface, it's perfectly acceptable. Right. That's that's always been my understanding that if, if if no cord is showing that the, that the tire is, is airworthy. Which and, is exactly. And, and, and worthy. Which yes. is exactly what Steve is saying. Steve, I totally agree with Steve. I think you got it right, Steve. Yeah, so what I, about I, calendar day? Not by calendar there, there, day. There is no time limit. There is no TBO on tires. Tires are strictly replaced on condition. Unlike for example, rubber hoses, which which have at least a recommended replacement calendar time, uh, tires are not like that. I had a um, a friend way back when that was an F four Phantom pilot, and uh, they had a real problem. <laughs> I know this this is weird. I'm going off the deep end here, but they if cord were showing on the tires, they couldn't fly their mission. So a standard part of their flight kit was a magic marker. So that when they got out to the airplane, they could paint those cords black if the cords weren't cut through. So oh people would, from a distance, it looked like there was still some rubber on top of the treads. That's awesome. <laughs> That's what I was told. I don't know that it's real. It's just what I was told. Well, the advisory circular has a really interesting uh, caution. It says, do not probe cuts or embedded FOD when the tire is inflated. <laughs> I could just see an AMP like getting an all in there to check and see how deep those holes are. <laughs> Okay, guys, I think you've uh, answered my question. I'll uh, throw the AC circular at my mechanic and see what he says. Yeah, but don't throw us at your mechanic. Just just throw the AC at him. That, that'll be better. Yes. Steve, appreciate you coming on. It was good to have you. Thanks for answering the question, guys. Enjoyed okay. it. Good luck, Steve. Thanks. Bye see now. Ya. Okay, next up is Henry, who's having a curious issue with his spark plugs. What you got, Henry? Well, hey, first, thanks for having me here today. It's great to be with you. Um, I'm in a flying club with uh, six other people. We have a Cessna 182 with an 0470U engine. And uh, the other day, one of my partners was flying, and the number four cylinder stopped firing. So uh, it turns out that both spark plugs were cracked. So we replaced the plugs, and everything is, is now you know back to normal. So, but I thought it was odd that both plugs would fail that way at the same time and, and wonder if there's something that might cause that kind of failure. Did it just come out of maintenance? 
No, no, oh, okay. <laughs> no, 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 it hadn't. Uh, and uh, and the run-ups were um, that everyone has done gave no indication that there was a problem. Henry, do you know what kind of spark plugs they were? Were they fine wire plugs? Were they mass electrode plugs? No, they were mass electrode plugs. Yeah. Okay. And when you say cracked, was that the ceramic that was cracked? Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, the, the ceramic, the insulator. Down no, by the no, no core insulator. And typically, the only thing I can think of that would cause both of those plugs to crack would be a, a detonation episode, which will frequently take out the nose core insulators because they're the most fragile things in the uh, in the combustion chamber. So it would probably be advisable to do a borescope inspection of that cylinder with particular attention to what the top of the piston looks like. Because if the detonation event was a serious one, it will normally leave signatures on the on the piston crown. The thing will typically look like somebody beat it with a ball-peen hammer or something, and it'll be pockmarked. If the airplane has an engine monitor, you might be able to look back at the at the data and actually see a detonation event occur if it if it did. It does it have a monitor? It does. It has an engine monitor. It's an old JPI 700, and unfortunately, it doesn't have the recording option. Oh, oh it's, it's uh, a really old. Yeah, go fix that yeah. right away. Yeah. Uh, and we did actually have a borescope done because we just brought it into annual. And, and the, the good news is there doesn't appear to be any piston damage or, or cylinder damage. Well, I mean, that's, that's good. Detonation comes in, in all sorts of flavors. It can, it can be mild and just clean everything up nice and clean, <laughs> or, or it can be real heavy and, and do some damage. And I'm not saying that that necessarily is what happened, but it's really the only thing I can think of that would cause both spark plugs to have nose core insulator cracks. What a perfect way to stop detonation by destroying both spark plugs and the event's over. So, yeah, so there are a few. Problem solved. <laughs> well, yeah, heavy detonation normally is a self-correcting event one way or the other. <laughs> right. But yeah. this, was, this was a non-destructive self, self-correcting event. No holes in the piston, all's good. Oh, well, I was going to tell a very short story about bad plugs. When I picked up my Skybolt, it was flying beautifully, and we're tooting along, taking it back home from Tennessee near hey, Paul. Careful, careful. And then all of a sudden, the engine started missing. And my instructor and I did an emergency landing, and it was misfiring and a big mess. And I was sure something else was wrong. And the only mechanic in DeQueen, Arkansas, who was a gem, turned That's out. DeQueen. Oh, really? DeQueen, Arkansas. Sorry, I don't yes. speak south. But <laughs> anyway. The, the guy uh, said, well, let's check the spark plugs first. They're the easiest. And I was, you know, smart-ass mechanic. I'm like, no, 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 it's got to be something else. But we checked the spark plugs, and none of them fired in his tester. And he said, well, somebody dropped a handful of spark plugs. And I was like, well, we, when we, we've been flying for four hours. Why does it start now? And he just gave me this big shrug and said, let's replace them. He gave me a whole set of new spark plugs right off an engine he was building in his shop. And just gave me his address and said, send me some new ones when you get home. And he was right. Boy, that airplane had a lot of get up and go after those new spark plugs were in there. You know, that's an interesting thought. That That is one other thing that could cause both plugs to to, to have cracked insulators if somebody <laughs> dropped them, them both while they yeah. were doing maintenance. And, and that's why Paul asked, had the airplane just come out of maintenance? Because, heck, I mean, I've dropped a spark plug and it goes right in the trash. Yeah. Because you, that's you what always, happens. You always drop them twice. 
<laughs> Once on the floor and the second time in the trash can. That's exactly that's how they should go. <laughs> so, I don't know. That's another theory. But, yeah, and you don't see the cracks when you drop them. You just have to assume they're there. And really, it, you have to pitch it. And it's also, I don't know if you do in-flight mag checks and that sort of thing, but one could have failed early. And on a 182, yeah. yeah, 182, the induction system is so horrible. On my 182, we, we found that, you know, the lean spread was huge and all that. One spark plug could quit operating or could quit operating at high power, run okay at low power and the vibration is different. Uh, and you'd be flying along for a long time. And so the second one that fails is the one that gets your attention. The first one could have been a problem for a, a while. So maybe in-flight mag checks would be a good idea from now on. Oh, we love those. Yeah, it's a They're, very good idea. Yep, definitely a good idea. Well, that was a great question. Obviously, we had a lot to say about <laughs> it. <laughs> Thank you all. I appreciate the advice. Yeah, and the best thing is that your cylinder seems to be okay. So that's good news. So thanks for uh, participating, Henry. We appreciate your call. Well, great. Thanks for taking the question. Take Enjoy, care. Enjoy, Henry. All right, our next question is from David, who's trying to separate myth from reality. What you got, David? So I recently changed Moonies to a Mooney Ovation, and the new Ovation has... Uh, weight limits in terms of landing limits, and it carries a lot more fuel. So we started, we, we keep it in a hangar in Maryland, about a 100 miles from the coast, so we're not next to an ocean. And in the past, we always kept the airplane mostly full of fuel because we've heard things like it matters for the, the tanks and the sealant should be kept wet. And But I can't find anything that really says that this is true. It's just stuff that I've heard. And with this plane, we've been leaning towards leaving it with just you know 20 gallons in the tank, so it'd be about a, a fifth full. Um, when it's sitting in the hangar and whether that's a bad idea and we could introduce moisture and we really should be keeping a lot more fuel in it when it's sitting. It doesn't sit for more than a week or two at a time. Interesting quote. So everybody's got some thoughts here, but I used to do a lot of Mooney structural repairs, wing skin replacements, which meant tank resealing. Uh, I now do Cessna 210s primarily, which use the a very similar sealant, little different process. Mooney's back in the day, were assembled, the wings were put together, and then sealant was painted on. It was three layers, three coats of different application. I have been told, and I'm not a, a big Mooney person anymore, that the newer airplanes are assembled with sealant in between the parts, which is how Cessna did it from day one. Colleen's Cardinal is like that. They put sealant on the ribs and stringers and on the skin, put it together uh, and started riveting, which means the sealant becomes a gasket and regardless of how old the sealant gets, there's still that element in between there. On the Moonies, on the older Moonies at least, uh, they didn't have that extra protection, if you will. If you leave a wet wing, we call them wet wings, out in the sun to bake in Phoenix, Arizona, for instance, wing temperatures can exceed 140 degrees real easy. And the sealant begins to turn to this weird powder consistency and it can literally just fall off. Keeping the tanks wet, or keeping them full is very important if it's gonna be outdoors and in the sun because the, the liquid has a wonderful heat sink effect. It helps keep it cool, not just wet, but cool. If you're in a hangar, the dynamics are totally different. Uh, but in my just personal experience, airplanes that are 
kept full of fuel, the sealant tends to appear to last longer. Totally anecdotal. I don't have any actual data to back that up. It's just my experience of being an airplane owner for 30 plus years of different airplanes and a mechanic and just making observations. Well, what Paul said was exactly right up until the very end when he sort of oh, backtracked. I didn't like man. that. But but, <laughs> but but basically, this whole business about keeping tanks full was precisely what, what Paul said originally, which is that it's, a, it's an issue of heat sinking. And it's really only relevant if the airplane is sitting out in, in the sun and the upper surface of the wing is getting hot. As long as the airplane's sitting in the hangar, you can keep it at any fuel level. It'll be fine. That's interesting because as a new student and a new airplane owner, I was taught, it was beaten into me to fill the tanks after every flight because I thought you were worried about water condensing in the no. tank. <laughs> well, and that, but that's another thing that happens much more if the airplane's sitting outdoors than if it's in the hangar because the condensation it, to the extent that it occurs, uh, and, and it, I think it's kind of overblown in training, but it, it has to do with the daily temperature cycling where things get hot and cold and hot and cold and th that cycling causes condensation. And when the airplane's sitting in the hangar, the, the temperature changes are much, much less. That, that's why, you know, if you leave your car sitting out in the driveway, the next morning you'll see a, a lot of dew on the windows. But if you keep it in the garage, you won't. And the, the garage doesn't have any less humidity than the driveway it just has a, a smaller temperature cycling than what's on the driveway. And so the same thing applies to condensation tanks. If the airplane's hangered, it pretty much eliminates it. Of course, if he's really worried, he can heat his hangar, but I don't think he should be worried about no, that. No, no. Yeah. You no, know, even if it's unheated hangar, the, the temperature change is much, much less than if the airplane's sitting outdoors. So that's probably good news for David. Yeah, that was a very helpful answer. And then yeah. just to follow up, traveling? Should I worry if I'm parking it out in the sun for five days about filling it up in that situation? Or is it really more of a not a short-term kind of thing? Every bit of time you spend outside in the baking sun is just that much more time that's that could be doing damage. I will suggest, though, if you fill the tanks and it's cool outside and the fuel is cool, there's really no reason to top it all the way up because when the sun comes up, it's going to expand and you're going to lose fuel out the vents. At least that's the case on like a 210 or a Cardinal. And you'll lose several gallons as that fuel expands. So there's no reason to just get it maxed out. But get some in there and that'll help keep that tank cool. Yeah, honestly, it holds so much fuel that I can fly with myself in a 10-pound bag if I fill it up full. So it's not wow. very <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Was it 100 was it like 108, 110 gallons or something? I think 108, I think, is what it is. Yeah. That's a lot it's of just fuel. A, that's it's a, just a lot of weight. <laughs> that's that's a lot of fuel. That's I can't fly that long. <laughs> no. Yeah, there's no reason to have that much fuel. I just don't need to tanker it around. And mm -hmm. All I right. Thank you so much. Thanks for being on the show. Okay, next up is Jim, who's wondering where to install his Surefly electronic ignition. Go ahead, Jim. Thank you. Yes. Uh, so I've got a 1981 Saratoga uh, with the IO540, of course. Thankfully, not a dual mag on that one. So I have the option to get a Surefly electronic ignition. Uh, I do not have one of these yet, but I'm interested. And uh, so my question is, 
which mag do I replace, uh, the left or the right? I've read and heard some differing opinions on the subject. Uh, some say, and I think the manufacturer recommends to replace the left mag with the impulse uh, coupling, and that way it, it reduces that point of failure, reduces maintenance on that mag, and of course, it should start great on the electronic emissions, so that makes sense. However, I've also seen others argue that if you replace the right mag, you can just uh, simply start on both, leave it there, and you've got, uh, you've got both options. Uh, if the electronic condition should fail for some reason, however unlikely that may be, uh, you wouldn't go flying, but you can still start it up to taxi across the field to your local shop. Um, I don't know if that holds any water at all. But yeah, possible merit on either side and wondering uh, what your thoughts are. Well, so I have to respond to this one because I just recently installed a Surefly in uh, my Cirrus, which you have a very different engine. But one of the reasons I installed the Surefly is because the impulse coupling failed. I had a couple of kickback events and it took out my starter adapter, which is a very expensive thing to have to deal with. And so I was very happy to get rid of that impulse coupling. Unfortunately, I have two. So I still have an impulse coupling in the airplane. In your situation, you only have an impulse coupling on the left mag, correct? And so you have nothing on the right. If it were me, just me, personal opinion, I'd get rid of that impulse coupling in a heartbeat. I agree 100%, but I have another question. If you did it the other way, which is the, <laughs> which is the way we're not recommending. That's right. Tell me exactly how you would start the engine on both. You'd have to replace the ignition switch, right? Because yeah, the ignition switch it locks it out. Grounds out the, the, the other mag it does. during start. Yes, indeed. And, and I've read of folks doing that, just rewiring <laughs> that switch uh, to to make that make sense. But if, oh my God, that sounds like a sounds, <laughs> sounds like a major alteration. That's a to major me. What do you alteration. Think, Paul? <laughs> Yikes! You approve data DER. I, I think I think that needs a approval. No, no, would the FAA is not listening. <laughs> wait, would that would that be an engine DER or an airframe DER? Oh, this is complicated. Wow. <laughs> Complicated yeah, sounds expensive. We're, oh, just, we're, ju- we're just we're just joking, but I think I think the universal uh, opinion here is get rid of that stupid impulse coupling and put the Surefly on there. Yeah, I think the least of my worries is taxiing across the field to the AMP. Yeah. there's <laughs> always a tow to truck you. somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would go with the manufacturer's recommendations, which is this is mag. this is a normally aspirated Saratoga. That's correct. Yes. Okay. So you'll be able to use the variable timing feature of the Surefly. That is the hope. Yeah. And you you will see a little higher cylinder head temperatures, but you'll also get a little better fuel economy. So, But your Lycoming engine can handle slightly yes. higher CHT, <laughs> so all's well. Well, you don't know what his CHTs have been running, so. But. Well, that's true. <laughs> well, <laughs> now that I know I can assumption. just move the red line up on my savvy charts. <laughs> yeah. so that, that's right. Good to go. Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, universal uh, agreement on the answer. That's helpful. Thank you very much. Yeah, that sounds like a win-win mod for your airplane, too. Very nice. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Okay. Well, that was an easy one. Thank you for not stumping us. It was a great question. I'm sure a lot of people will find that helpful. At least one easy one per episode. That's what we require. We need those. (laughs) Okay. Well, thanks, Jim. Thanks very much for waiting. Take care. Thank you very much. Enjoy the podcast. Bye-bye. Our next question comes from Zach, who's got a uh, an avionics issue, which we are all kind of borderline on the avionics stuff. Saving grace is it has to do with engine display. So go ahead, Zach, what do you have for us? Yep, I'd be happy to start. Uh, 
so a while back, I flew a Quest Kodiak for a Part 91 flight department in the Midwest. The aircraft is equipped with a Garmin G1000 avionics suite. A problem uh, developed with the GEA-71 that runs the engine instruments. So you uh, have the ITT on there, the NG percents, the fuel flow, um, as well as flap and trim positions for that PT-6. So we were out on a flight, uh, me and another pilot, uh, two Kodiaks, and the other guy on this particular aircraft had all of his engine instruments, Red X, and his flap and trim indication. So we knew right away it was the GEA-71. So we cycled the breaker, recycled the avionics to no avail. And it just came back on its own about 15 minutes later in flight. So once on the ground, we looked into it. And on ground power, it could not be duplicated. We went through the troubleshooting steps from Garmin, and they had nothing for us. So the plane was released to fly again, could not duplicate that classic uh, item, and it flew again. And the same problem happened a couple hours later in flying. So after the second time it failed in flight, it was inspected by a mechanic, and they couldn't find anything. So it headed home, and on that third leg coming home to our home airport, it failed again lost the engine indications and flap and trim indications. So now it came up to be my turn to fly the aircraft. Um, it had been with two other pilots before then. And I said, no, I refused it because of this sort of inconsistent problem that none of the mechanics have been able to find. So the reason for doing that is had a few concerns about troubleshooting avionics that have no solution. And so my questions are the following, kind of a threefold so how far do you allow troubleshooting avionics or ghosts in a system to go before replacing a unit outright, even without a failure cause, since they couldn't find anything three times now? And if a failure is known to happen inconsistently, that uh, would bring into question the airworthiness of the aircraft under 91205. Should it even be flown until a true solution is found? My opinion on that is it should not be flown. And then the final question is there any FAA regulations that address the sort of cannot duplicate scenarios as a final maintenance, um, I guess, declaration? On old systems, you had all these discrete components and you could isolate the system. You could break it into parts and you could find out what things were working and what things weren't. With the GEA-71, everything is inside a box. And sometimes if the whole thing starts red Xing you can oftentimes be left with just replacing the box unless you can find some input that is common to all the red X's. If you sometimes will have uh, a percent power readout, for instance, on, a, on certain airplanes, well, percent power requires outside air temperature. So sometimes the outside air temperature probe can fail and red X indicated air speeds or calculated, you know, all, all sorts of things, including percent power. So it's a very strange combination. So if all of your engine instruments red X'd, then the GEA-71 sounds logical. If only certain ones red X'd, then you might want to look through the system and find out what one thing is common to all of those. And maybe that one system failed and the others don't have a basis for their calculation. You know, one reason to keep flying in a situation like this is to collect data or troubleshoot. It would help the maintenance on the ground. But in this case, I would assume that this unit is recording data streams, so it would be able to record what's going on, and you shouldn't have to do any troubleshooting in the air. 
But if it's red Xing, it may not be recording either. Yeah, but is there anything you could do in the air to try to add to your knowledge of what's going on? Well, that is a thought. I mean, all of those have, do they record the data? They keep a, an SD card in the upper slot of the MFD? Yes, there's a trend data card, and it always went dead as soon as it read uh, X. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. You know, in that situation, because there's so much at stake with losing all of your engine indications, I would say this problem really needs a resolution before you're going to take it out. I mean, if you're going out on specifically on a maintenance test flight, VFR weather, all that kind of stuff, and everybody knows what's happening, that's one thing. But revenue carrying or passenger carrying, that that would not be the thing to do, in my view. Yeah, the, these intermittents that, that only happen in flight and can't re, be, be reproduced in the hangar are, are always exasperating. And the best thing that you can possibly do for it is to figure out a way to reproduce it on the ground. And, and that, that can be tricky. I mean, I, I'm, I'm wondering, for example, whether anybody ever tried hit, hitting the, the GEA unit with a heat gun or... or, or a hammer. Or, or, a or, hammer. Or, yeah, exactly, <laughs> vibrating it. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a brief war story that just happened to me. And uh, my, my Cessna 310 suddenly started developing really horrible noise in the comm radios. And, and the noise was so bad that I could hardly hear ATC. And I sort of decided that it, it was so bad that I wasn't willing to fly and, until it got resolved. Uh, it had been working just fine, and all of a sudden this noise started. So I determined that, that it, it only happened when the engines were running, and it didn't make any noise when I shut down the engines. So I said, well, I wonder which engine is doing this. So I tried it on the left engine, I tried it on the right engine, and it didn't matter which engine I was running, it still made noise. So it occurred to me it clearly wasn't actually coming from either of the engines, it was just a vibration issue. And uh, so I, I started playing around and, and finally determined that if I pressed on one corner of my audio panel and I pushed real hard, the noise would go away, even with the engines running. So now <laughs> I've sort of localized it to the audio panel. I know it's vibration related and, 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 and I know that it, it has something to do with if I press on the left side of the audio panel, it goes away. I figured maybe the thing wasn't fully engaged in the rack. That turned out not to be the problem. Ultimately, I discovered that with the engine stopped, I could make the noise happen if I hit the top of the glare shield with my fist. Now, this was a huge <laughs> breakthrough, okay, because now I can reproduce it in the maintenance hangar, and now I can really troubleshoot it. So, uh, you know, I pulled off the glare shield and started messing around back there, and what I discovered was that the the rear of the audio panel rack had not been properly secured and it was moving. And what was worse was it wasn't properly grounded to the airframe. It was depending on the, the screws in the front of the rack that were, were holding it in. And when the thing moved, it caused an intermittent ground situation. So by securing the rack and running a bunch of ground wires to make sure everything was, was fully grounded, the problem was finally resolved. But this is, was sort of indicative of how you have to deal with these things. You've got to fault isolate them. You've got to narrow the, the scope. 
And you've got to try as hard as you can to figure out some way that you can reproduce the problem while, while it's in the hangar so that you can actually work on it. Garmin doesn't include that particular step in their troubleshooting uh, printed guide. Like it's hitting, in a supplement. It with your fist? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's in a supplement. It's kind of buried in the back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, since I had determined that it was vibration related, I figured if I could make the vibration happen with my fist, that that, that might make the problem reproducible. And sure enough, it did. Don't do that in front of a customer, though. It's not not the way to do that. A beat on the airplane. That's right. <laughs> well, well, Zach cites ninety one two hundred five, which talks about airworthiness requirements and equipment that has to be in the airplane and functioning, and and it's a good call. I kind of laugh because I I know other pilots that maybe they have a beacon out or their ELT isn't working, and they're like well, I'm just going to go flying because I got to get that $100 hamburger. And if I get ramp checked, I'll say, well, it was working when I left. But yeah, or, or, that's, or what the have, that's what you have to say. Yeah, that's it. yeah. So everybody's done that. Everybody that I know has done that. But um, when you're talking loss of engine instrumentation, I think that I agree with you, Zach. That was a good call. Different level. Yeah. So, you know, the, the one where, well, it doesn't break until way later in the flight. So maybe we can finish the flight before it breaks. <laughs> yeah, that was the reason that uh, I was oh. also very not okay with that as a recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. And, and to to address the last question that Zach had, I am not aware of anything in the regs that talks about cannot duplicate. Are, are you? I don't think there's any regulation about that. We just have to apply common sense. Yeah, but if you're the pilot, though, the regs do state that you're the ultimate person in charge of airworthiness. So 91403, that's you. That's your authority right there. Yeah, 364 days a year, you're in charge of airworthiness. One that's day right. a year, an IA is. Zach, thanks for coming on. Great, yeah, questions great questions for us. Very interesting, yeah. And to uh, to close the book on that Kodiak issue, we ended up eventually replacing the GEA outright. It was duplicated after a long time on ground power. Oh. And all the internal voltages were were bad and they were all red X'd. So... It's got a new unit now, and now it lives in Oregon. It's gone. We sold it. Well, I'm, I'm glad we didn't give you advice that went contrary to the solution you already knew about. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. You know, if, if you were an F-18 in the Navy, they would just swap that box out, and you would have been airworthy the very next day. Yeah. But Troubleshooting you know. step one, change a yeah. box. Yeah. I appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. See you, Zach. Take care. Bye. Well, that's a wrap. We know a lot more about maintenance than podcasting for sure. So we'd love to hear from you. Give us your ideas on what you'd like us to talk about. Send your questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. Fly safely and have fun, and we'll see you next time. See you then. Bye, everybody. Bye.